Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Saturday the 26th of December 1896 and Sydney siders who are looking to have fun on this hot boxing day are spoiled for choice. As the evening news remarks, quote, The attractions offered to pleasure seekers today are numerous and the arrangements for the transit of passengers by rail, tram, bus and steamer are most complete. Starting at 9.30 in the morning, there's a big march from Martin Place of mounted troopers, a brass band, and splendidly garbed members of various orders of oddfellows, druids, foresters, and free gardeners. At the Sydney Cricket Ground, it's the first day of the intercolonial test between Queensland and New South Wales, while not far away at Randwick Racecourse, punters can enjoy the Australian Jockey Club's summer meeting. Those craving indoor entertainments on this hot summer's day are also catered for, especially now that the moving pictures have arrived. The city's Lumiere Cinematograph is showing films from the other side of the world, and patrons can see the recently crowned Russian Tsar Nicholas II touring Paris and the marriage of Princess Maud of Wales to Prince Karl of Denmark at Buckingham Palace. Yet the Cinematograph has competition in something called the Panthoscope, unveiled for the first time this Boxing Day at the Sydney School of Arts. Advertisements promise, quote, The cinematograph is dwarfed into insignificance by the powerful and wonderful effects of the panthoscope. In truth, though, that's in the eye of the beholder. Despite its impressive-sounding name that's meant to cash in on the cinema craze, the panthoscope isn't actually one of the marvellous newfangled moving picture machines. Instead, it's an old-fashioned Latin show, comprising colourful paintings on glass slides that are projected against a screen, scenes fading one into the other, with the story narrated dramatically by a lecturer. Although it's a bit old hat, what draws a continuous stream of customers to the panthoscope all day today is the story that's being shown and told. Rather than seeing far-off royalty in all their glory, visitors are to behold grimmer and gorier scenes from far, far closer to home. Called The Mountain Mystery, the program shows the recent murders committed just an hour west of Sydney. These are crimes that have been headline news ever since the first man was reported missing a month ago. To step inside the School of Arts and behold the panthoscope is to be taken beyond the black and white newspaper headlines and articles with their line drawings, portraits, landscapes and search maps. 
Talented oil painter Patrick William Moroni prides himself on his research, visiting the locations of Australian crimes to reproduce them in glorious colour. And now he's outdone himself with the chilling mountain mystery. The program begins with a reminder of mankind's first murder case, Cain killing Abel, in surroundings not dissimilar to the landscape we see next. Rugged bush, deep gullies and glistening waterfalls. Theme and setting established, we see Lee Weller, a stocky retired sea captain of nearly 40 years of age, signing a contract to go looking for gold in the Blue Mountains. His new prospecting partner is Frank Butler, a slightly younger man who's tall, solidly built, has brown eyes, black hair and a big dark moustache that only partially hides the scars across his face. A new lantern slide shows us, by stark moonlight, the men's tent and their camp beside the Glenbrook Lagoon. We see Lee Weller dreaming of returning home and then he hears the whisper of death. The scene transforms to show his foul murder at the hands of his mining partner. New Latin scenes now show Frank Butler taking another young man named Arthur Preston into these same mountains and then doing away with him in similar fashion. Despite the crime chronology being jumbled, Preston actually met his fate before Weller, the Daily Telegraph newspaper says the program gives a good idea of, quote, one of the blackest crimes in Australian history. And what adds to the thrill this Boxing Day is that everyone visiting the Panthoscope knows that this story's most exciting moments are yet to take place. That's because Frank Butler, who almost certainly killed another man before he lured Preston and Weller to their deaths, is right at this moment halfway across the Pacific trying to make his escape to San Francisco. What he doesn't know is that three Sydney policemen are trying to get there first so they can arrest him before he disappears into the vastness of the Americas he knows so well. One of those officers? He knows Frank Butler better than anyone. He should because he was nearly one of his victims. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's First Serial Killer Manhunt. Colonial Australia had its share of savage murderers who could be classified serial killers. A few examples. Convict Alexander Pierce claimed to have killed and eaten eight of his fellow fugitives in Tasmania during two separate escapes in 1822 and 1824. Right at the end of 1825, also in Tasmania, convict Thomas Jeffries escaped with three other men and they went on a three-week rampage that left six people dead, including a baby, a policeman and one of the gang who was killed for his flesh. In 1841 in New South Wales, John Lynch, the so-called Berrimer Axe murderer, was charged with and convicted of one murder and before he was hanged, confessed to another eight. Then there was Frederick Deeming, who murdered his wife in Melbourne in late 1891 and, when arrested in Western Australia in March the following year, was found to have killed his first wife and their four children back in England. While all four of these men are now called serial killers, in each case there are grey areas. Alexander Pierce was only confirmed to have killed and eaten one man. As for the others, we rely on his confession because nothing was ever found of them. Thomas Jeffries was no doubt a sadistic monster, but he also committed the murders as part of a bushranging rampage. John Lynch really does fit the bill, but again, we rely mostly on his confession. Frederick Deeming's first five murders took place in England and, as they all took place at once, they might more correctly be classified as a spree or mass killing. In all of these cases, the magnitude of the crimes, or the confessed crimes, only really became clear once they were captured. The usual definition of a serial killer is someone who commits three or more murders with an interval between each crime. Typically, though not always, the killer acts alone and employs the same modus operandi. 
Frank Butler checks all of these boxes. With the evidence against him and his confession, a strong claim can be made for him being Australia's first confirmed serial killer. What is certain though is that Frank Butler was the subject of Australia's first serial killer manhunt because his crimes were known while he was still at large. This is the story of crimes and a chase that had spanned from Sydney and Glenbrook to San Francisco and the Golden Gate that it involved Australian and American police and celebrities and that would make Frank Butler a figure of international infamy. It's also a story of crazy coincidences and close calls, of some men heeding their intuition and others ignoring it with tragic consequences. Frank Butler wasn't just infamous in 1896 and 1897. He was also intriguing because his identity couldn't be confirmed then and it still remains shrouded in mystery today. That's understandable because Butler, as I'll call him for clarity and continuity, specialised in stealing people's identities and convincingly spinning tales that spirited men to their deaths. In the few accounts there are of this case, the most notable being Robert Travers' 1972 book, Murder in the Blue Mountains, it's claimed that Butler's real name was Richard Ashe and that he was born in Dorset, England in 1858. This version, however, discounts as untrue a lengthy newspaper statement that Butler made about his origins. Yet records are now available that suggest Butler was probably telling the truth when he said his real name was John Newman. He said he was born in West Bromwich, Staffordshire, England on the 20th of June 1858 and that his parents for many years kept a tavern called The Boats Inn. Butler said he'd been a wayward boy of a hard and callous nature whose main aim in life was to be independent. At age 14, he was apprenticed to an ironworker and over the next three years, he twice tried to run away to sea but was brought home both times by the police. At age 17, he successfully absconded, went to Liverpool and soon after joined the Navy and was drafted to the vessel HMS Industry under a Captain Dyer. So, how much of this is true? Records at Ancestry.com.au confirm that a John Newman was born in Staffordshire at this time and that his father was a licensed victualler. Further, the 1871 census shows this Newman family living at West Bromwich, with the father, Thomas, working as a publican at the canal side Boat Inn, and son, John, engaged as an ironworker. Meanwhile, naval records in the British Archives show that a John Newman, born in Warwickshire, enlisted in the Royal Marines in 1875, aged about 18. And Captain Dyer did indeed command the HMS industry. Of course, John Newman is a common name, so it's possible this was another John Newman whose identity Butler simply assumed at some point. But much of the rest of his story checks out in terms of the names and movements of people and ships. According to Butler, HMS Industry went to Zanzibar, where it conveyed the great explorer Henry Stanley to the west coast of Africa. After that, Butler was transferred to HMS Flora and served aboard the vessel until he volunteered for service in the Zulu War, with him saying this was in late 1878. Butler would say that he was honourably discharged after five years' service and, to the best of his recollection, this was in August 1880. Those naval records in the British Archives show that the John Newman of Warwickshire was discharged in 1879. So, it's pretty close. After a brief stint as a police constable, Butler said, he enlisted in the British Army when the Egyptian war broke out and was part of the force that landed in Alexandria after it was bombarded in July 1882. He said he saw much action in Egypt and his descriptions were detailed, specifying superior officers and campaign movements before he was sent home with a minor wound in March 1883. Butler said he worked for seven months in a coal mine and when the war in Sudan began in 1884, he enlisted in the army yet again. Instead of going back to Africa to fight, he was stationed at Edinburgh Castle where he was busted for being drunk and disorderly. Disgusted at being demoted in rank, 
Butler said he deserted and sailed to New York City, arriving in March 1884. Here, he enlisted in the US Cavalry, but believing himself overworked and underpaid, he deserted to Canada, where he joined the Mounted Police in Manitoba before being discharged by a superior who learned of his chequered past. Various misadventures ensued. He helped defend the Canadian government against a rebellion, spent time with the Royal Canadian Artillery, and headed back to the United States, where he enlisted in the army under the name of Anderson, only to desert again. This could all be the work of a fabulist with a passing knowledge of 1880s current events, but his account also contained details like this one about his next stop, San Francisco. Quote, I was in that town only three days when I shipped on the British ship Balclutha, Captain Constable in command. This was September 1888. Checking the San Francisco Examiner newspaper confirms that this ship indeed left that port on the 2nd of September under the command of Captain Constable. From here, Butler said, he wound up in Chile where he worked in a silver mine before heading back to Antwerp and then Liverpool where he sailed to Sydney on the British ship Ulidia under Captain Patey, arriving in August 1891. Again, these details check out. From Newcastle, Butler sailed back to San Francisco aboard the Star of Russia, deserting when the ship arrived at the end of October 1891. For several months in San Francisco, he worked as a fireman in a laundry before returning to England under the name Richard Ash. Under this name, he sailed for Santos, Brazil, before going overland to Rio de Janeiro. There, again as Richard Ash, he got a job as an able seaman aboard the four-masted bark Olive Bank, which was bound for Newcastle in New South Wales. A crewmate would recall him as always talking about how he could make money. The crewmate said that Butler was surly and bad-tempered, with a domineering spirit that made the other men wary. On one occasion, he argued with the ship's cook and had to be stopped from bashing him. This crewmate, whose account must be taken with a grain of salt, also claimed that Butler had spoken of doing dark deeds in the South American backcountry. What is known for certain, though, is that the Olive Bank arrived in Newcastle on the 23rd of April, 1893, and Butler wanted to leave the ship, and so he feigned rheumatic pains in his leg. He was seen by a doctor who ordered soap liniment. The Olive Bank's captain, John Petrie, brought this remedy to Butler. Angry that he wasn't about to be let off the olive bank, Butler threatened the captain's life and used, quote, fearfully indecent expressions. Captain Petrie had the police flag hoisted and Newcastle's finest came aboard and took Butler from the ship and to the lockup. Coming before the court, the man who gave his name as Richard Ash was sentenced to one month in Maitland Jail. Upon his release, Butler boarded a steamer for Sydney and then sailed west to Fremantle in June 1893. On the West Australian goldfields, he set about a spectacularly unsuccessful career as a thief. His MO was to steal from miners' tents, though on one occasion he also tried to sell three horses that belonged to the police. Butler didn't get away with much. He was mentioned in the Western Australian newspapers for his various larcenies and he served five separate sentences in Fremantle Prison between August 1893 and January 1896. Punishment wasn't any sort of deterrence for Butler and in July 1896 at Coolgardie he raided the tent of a young mining engineer from Victoria. This man's name, Frank Butler Horwood. This time, Richard Ash, aka John Newman, struck what he considered to be gold, not the actual precious metal, but rather valuable professional certificates. These documents confirmed that Frank Butler Horwood had graduated the Ballarat School of Mines and worked as an assayer at Broken Hill. With these papers in his possession, the thief sailed for Sydney, arriving on Sunday, the 2nd of August, 1896. From now, he'd become Frank Butler Hallwood, though he'd also mix it up by using the variant Harwood and saying his name was just plain Frank Butler. He took accommodation at Gillam's Restaurant in Pitt Street and told the proprietor that he'd arrived from Western Australia to do some prospecting. 
Butler appeared a light-hearted, prosperous chap. He whistled and joked, shouting whiskey for the waiters and giving a girl who worked at Gillum's a photo of himself. Butler also took out classified advertisements in the Sydney newspapers. One such ad in the Daily Telegraph would read, quote, Prospector, certified metallurgist, wants agreeable young fellow, mate, prospecting rough country, equal shares. Butler impressed respondents by showing them his certificates and talking a good game about how he owned mines that were worth thousands of pounds. One interviewee was a man named Wendon who said he was already going prospecting around Aubrey with two other fellows and he asked if Butler would like to join them. Butler said that he would but he couldn't leave immediately and so he'd meet them there at their hotel in a few days time. Before he was due though, Butler sent a letter saying he'd no longer be able to join Wendon because he'd made arrangements to go mining out in western New South Wales. That was because by then he'd chosen another prospecting partner. This man was Charles Burgess. Very little is known of his background other than he was said to be from Norway, that he'd done well on the Western Australian goldfields and had recently come to Sydney and was staying at a boarding house in Wynyard Square. Burgess was about 27 years old, stood 5'8 or 5'9, was a fair complexion and had a slight fair moustache. But his most notable features were his high cheekbones and prominent teeth, one of which was capped with gold. For a few days from the 8th of August, Butler and Burgess shopped in Sydney for what they needed for their trip west. Although it was Butler who boasted of his wealth, it was Burgess who paid £12 for a wagon at McCarty's Horse Bazaar in the city. Burgess also bought from a Mr Hill of Camperdown two distinctive branded horses and harnesses for these animals. He then paid to have them stabled at McCarty's. There, Burgess got to know an assistant named William Kalman. On the 12th of August, Burgess and Butler slept at Gillam's. At quarter past six the next morning, Burgess turned up at McCarty's. He saw William Kalman and paid him a couple of shillings to take out the horses and wagon. Asked what he was doing, Burgess told this stable worker he was going it alone. When Butler arrived at McCarty's two hours later and asked where Burgess was, William Kalman told him, quote, Oh, he does not like the look of you and has cleared out. Butler apparently replied, quote, Well, I must be after him. He's too good a thing to lose. Butler caught up to Burgess, with the men reportedly seen together at Parramatta, and he talked him round. After that, they put their wagon, horses, and themselves on a train bound for parks. They travelled with rifles and other firearms, along with their tents and swags. In their carriage, Butler made the acquaintance of a Mr Lawrence, who was a mining man from Orange. Butler and Burgess got off in Orange and stayed at a hotel for a few days. They were next seen on the 21st of August, when they drove their wagon into Marinburn, a tiny outpost halfway between Orange and Parks. Here, Butler acquainted himself with a miner named Robert Ray. He even gave this man a book about mining that was inscribed Frank B. Horwood. Butler ingratiated himself with other Marinburn residents too, particularly those involved with a local mine, which he told them he was interested in purchasing on behalf of the syndicate he represented. Oddly, for a man of supposed resources and connections, Butler wasn't only interested in buying. He was also in the mood to sell, specifically the wagon and horses that were owned by Burgess. He asked Mr Ray for £15 for these, Mr. Ray said he couldn't because he didn't have that much cash. Finding out about this, Burgess was angry and pointed out that they weren't his to sell. Yet Butler again managed to talk him around and back onto friendly terms. Speaking to Mr. Ray, Butler said that his young companion was prone to grumbling and they'd likely go their separate ways when they reached Parks. Butler and Burgess remained in Merrinburn until the 24th of August, saying they were heading for an area of sandstone hills known as the Dungeon. The duo was next seen at Bunbury, which was another flyspeck in this district known as the Black Range. There, they set up their camp by the roadside. 
A maintenance man named George Woodford came upon them on the 25th of August and saw Burgess standing in a hole he was digging while Butler sat nearby and issued instructions. Butler was pleased to make Mr Woodford's acquaintance and invited him to have biscuits and cocoa at their camp. While having these refreshments, Mr Woodford noted that Butler had a martini rifle. As men were prone to do in these parts, at this time they talked mining. Mr Woodford pointed to where Burgess had been digging and said, quote, I don't think you'll find anything there. You're not going the right way about it. You won't be able to tell whether there is gold there or not. At this, Butler became indignant and blustered, quote, You'll allow me to know better. I know what I'm about. When Butler walked away to get something, Burgess said to Mr Woodford, quote, Don't take any notice of him. He's a queer sort of fellow. He does not say much. He's an assayer as well as a mining expert, and he is paid partly by the government and partly by a Sydney syndicate. And if he strikes a good thing, it's the better for us all. Butler and Burgess were next seen on the 28th of August by Thomas MacDonald, who was travelling from Bogan Gate, a little village west of Parks. He saw the wagon and Burgess washing dirt in the creek. Mr MacDonald had some dinner with the men and got a good look at both of them. They later overtook him on the road and Mr MacDonald saw Burgess use his rifle to shoot a duck flying up from a swamp. He last saw the men on the road to the Black Range. The next day, a man named Alexander Evans saw Butler camped at Yarrabundi Creek. He was now alone. And while he'd been garrulous with Mr Woodford and Mr MacDonald, he was no longer in the mood for talking to strangers. That afternoon, the 29th of August, Butler camped on the property of a selector named John Williamson, and two days later he sold him the wagon and the horses for £15. Butler even wrote him a receipt that he signed in the name of Horwood. A condition of the sale was that Mr Williamson drive Butler into Parks in time to catch the train to Sydney on the 1st of September. At Parks, Butler went to Tattlesall's hotel and there, in a hallway, he passed none other than Mr Lawrence, who he and Burgess had met on the train from Sydney. Pretending not to recognise the man, Butler evaded him and went into a downstairs dining room. Upstairs, Mr Lawrence thought this so strange that he mentioned it to his luncheon companions. He also made a remark to a hotel employee who then went to Butler and said that a Mr Lawrence was asking after him. Not wanting to answer awkward questions, Butler hurried out and went to the railway station a full hour before the train to Sydney was due. Back in Sydney, Butler returned to Gillam's and advertised for a new mining mate. This time though, he found a potential prospecting partner right there at his hotel. This man's name was Michael Conroy and he was, or at least had been, a minor colonial celebrity. Originally from Springfield, Victoria, this 25-year-old stood 5'10 and was gracefully but solidly built at 190 pounds. Until about five years ago, he'd been a professional athlete. His biggest claim to fame was that on Boxing Day 1891 at the Warehouseman's Cricket Ground in St Kilda, Conroy had set the world record for a high jump when he'd cleared 6 feet 5 inches. During his career, he'd won thousands of pounds in various pole vaulting, discus, sprinting and hurdling events and he was also known as a speedy and agile oarsman, boxer and wrestler. A sporting champion? For sure. But... Michael Conroy was no sport and no champion. Back in March 1891, he'd met and wooed a 17-year-old girl named Jessie White who lived in Carlton with her parents. Conroy seduced her with a promise that he'd marry her. In July 1892, when she was pregnant with his child, they had an argument opposite Flagstaff Gardens in Melbourne. He threw her to the ground and then he thrashed her. After this, Conroy spirited Jessie away from Melbourne and her parents to the country. He gave her a few pounds, ordered her to live under an assumed name, and said she was to have no contact with her mother and father, who had no idea where she was or even that she was pregnant. As a result of her injuries, Jessie had the baby prematurely in August. The child survived and she wrote to Conroy with the news. He replied in endearing terms, 
warning her against letting her parents know anything and promising to send her money. Conroy then cut her off and didn't pay her a penny. Despite the shame this no doubt brought, Jessie and her father brought the case to the court in October of 1892. Michael Conroy was too much of a coward to show and defend himself, or even to send a lawyer in his stead. In his ruling, the judge described Conroy as a, quote, mean, contemptible villain, and ordered him to pay sureties of £50, £6 and 6 shillings in costs, and ongoing maintenance of 12 shillings, 6 pence a week. It's worth noting that while the judge accepted Conroy had thrashed his pregnant lover, there was no criminal punishment issued for this. Similarly, being recorded as a mean, contemptible villain didn't rule Conroy out of pursuing his later career in law enforcement. By early September 1896, Michael Conroy was in Sydney, staying at Gillam's and had applied to be a constable with the New South Wales Police. While he was waiting to hear if he'd been accepted, he heard about his fellow boarder butler planning a prospecting trip to Aubrey. Conroy knew something of Aubrey and so he made himself known. The two men met on the 10th of September. Butler told Conroy he owned a mine 30 miles north of Aubrey and that he was going to sell it and realise £5,000. If Conroy agreed to go mining with him in Aubrey, he'd give him half of this sale price. Butler asked if he wanted in. Conroy said he did, but he also had other business to attend to and so he'd let Butler know for sure in a few days' time. Butler's response was, quote, All right, I'm going to buy a couple of horses and a wagon and we will have a fun time. They met a few days later and had a drink in George Street. Conroy said he couldn't go. Try as he might, Butler wasn't able to talk him around. Later, Conroy would say that he'd tumbled to Butler being suspicious because that mining deal had seemed just too good to be true. Straight after Conroy's rejection, Butler linked up with a man named David Yates, who was well known in Sydney mining circles. Mr Yates was going to Grafton on behalf of a syndicate and he'd advertise for a metallurgist and a sayer. Butler offered his services and they met at Gillam's. Calling himself Frank Horwood, he showed Mr Yates his certificates and he said he had all the necessary equipment and was also looking forward to the chance to do some shooting up in the country. Butler told Mr Yates that he didn't want payment and he'd handle his own expenses. In return, he'd expect a share of whatever gold they found. These terms agreed, Mr Yates and Butler caught a steamer up the New South Wales coast on the 15th of September. On this vessel, they met three other miners and the men decided to join forces for this prospecting expedition. At Grafton, they heard of a potential gold reef 20 miles north at Coldale. Butler and one of the gentlemen from the boat went out to inspect it. Finding that it actually had gold-bearing potential, Butler told his companion they should keep it to themselves. This other fellow refused and he returned to Mr Yates and the others. When Butler came back, they told him to get lost. Butler's response was to try to get Mr. Yates alone on the pretense of doing a bit of shooting and gold fossicking in the mountains. Mr. Yates refused, which was why he was able to later tell this story. Butler returned to Sydney and to Gillam's on the 7th of October. He ran into Michael Conroy a few more times. On the last occasion the men spoke, Butler said he'd sold that mine down near Aubrey and Conroy had missed out on £2,500. He also said he was now going prospecting around Springwood in the Blue Mountains. On the 14th of October, Butler moved from Gillam's to the railway refreshment rooms operated by Elias Thompson. Butler again advertised in the Daily Telegraph, this time his notice saying that a prospective young mining mate would need to be ready to start work the following Monday, the 19th of October. A dozen men responded, and the one that Butler liked best was named Arthur Thomas Osborne Preston. 20 years old, Preston was a serious and religious fellow from a good family in Brisbane. A bright lad with a love of earth sciences, he'd hoped to get a position on the geological survey staff in Queensland. For that, he'd need qualifications. So he'd come to Sydney in February that year to study geology and mineralogy at the Technical College. 
Preston boarded in Darlington and he wrote home frequently. He attended the Baptist Church in Newtown, taught Sunday school and made friends in the congregation. Preston's father, a draper, sent him money regularly, but this wasn't much more than a living allowance, totaling just £60 or so over the past eight months. In the company of one of his friends, Robert Fielding, Preston met with Butler at the railway rooms on Saturday the 17th of October. Butler showed his Frank Hallward qualifications and spun his story about having recently sold a mine for thousands of pounds. Impressed, Preston agreed to accompany him to the Blue Mountains on the following Monday. While he decided quickly, this young fellow did harbour doubts. So much so that he went to Sydney's Mining Museum to ask about Frank Butler Hallward. Museum official Mr Harper knew someone who knew him. Charles Panton, a young journalist at the Australian Star newspaper who a few years back had studied with Horwood at the Ballarat School of Mines. Mr Harper gave Preston a letter of introduction to Charles Panton. In the meantime, Preston talked to his reverend, William Collar, of Newtown's Baptist Church. The reverend later said that he'd told Preston not to go. In response, Preston said that his new mining partner had excellent credentials, along with testimonials from when he'd worked at Broken Hill. Bizarrely, according to the Reverend, Preston didn't mention Frank Butler Horwood by name. If he had, a striking coincidence might have changed his fate. As the Reverend would later say, quote, Had he mentioned to me that the man he was going with claimed to be Horwood of Broken Hill and that he was about 40 years of age, I could have contradicted him because I was in Broken Hill when Horwood came to the hill and I knew him to be a young man, I supposed, of about 23. On Monday afternoon, Arthur Preston took his letter of introduction and met with Charles Panton of the Australian Star newspaper. Mr. Panton expressed surprise that Frank Hallward had abandoned his lucrative profession in Western Australia to come to New South Wales and take on such a hazardous prospecting expedition. The Australian star, presumably Charles Panton writing, later reported, quote, Preston agreed that it was peculiar but did not say whether they were going to a claim previously tested or whether they trusted to luck. He merely spoke of the venture as a trip out west. Charles Panton told Preston that Frank Horwood was about 25, was fair and tall, though slightly built. Preston replied, quote, Oh, this man appears to be about 35 and is the opposite to slight build. Alarms should have been sounding. Instead, Charles Panton said that, well, perhaps the Western Australian desert conditions had aged and darkened the man he knew. He said to Preston, quote, I suppose it is Horwood, as he has all his credentials and certificates, which I know he got at the School of Mines. Preston replied, Oh well, I'll go, but I'll take good care that he does not take me for any money. Mr. Panton volunteered to come to the railway station that night to ensure it was the real Frank Horwood, but he didn't end up making it because circumstances intervened. But Preston did take a friend named Arthur Fenton. This Mr. Fenton didn't like the look of Butler at all and said, quote, Arthur, I would not go. Preston replied, Oh, he is a bit bushy looking just now. You can't expect a city gentleman to go prospecting in his best clothes. I've heard of Hallwood before. He'll be all right. In Mr. Fenton's presence, Preston said he wanted to buy a rifle. He was pretty flush because he'd sold his bicycle for £20 and borrowed another £10 from a friend. Butler said there was no need to spend his money. That was because he already had a rifle and he was a good shot and if they saw wallabies or kangaroos, he'd be sure to pot one for their dinner. Preston promised to write to Mr. Fenton, but as he and his mining mate boarded the 8pm train to Glenbrook, Frank Butler said, quote, We are going a long way back and it might be six weeks before you hear from us. Elias Thompson, who owned the railway refreshment rooms, happened to be on the same train and in the same carriage. As they headed west, the three men had an animated conversation about the possibility of striking it rich. Butler and Preston got off at Emu Plains at the foot of the Blue Mountains, and for the next three days, they walked up into the lower mountains. The Bush Telegraph meant that many locals were aware of this duo, and they were mystified why anyone would fossick in these parts which had never been known to be gold-bearing. 
On the evening of the 22nd of October, a labourer named George Campbell saw Butler and Preston near Linden, which is about 20 miles west up the mountains from Emu Plains. Mr Campbell said hello and told them they were the first men he'd ever known of to look for gold in this area. Butler got his back up and claimed he'd found traces in the grass. Strangely, Preston backed him up on this, perhaps because he didn't want to look foolish. Mr. Campbell said they'd be better off in Coolgardie, to which Butler responded, quote, Damn Coolgardie, it's not what it's cracked up to be. As had been the case with Burgess, a passerby had questioned the basic mining knowledge of supposed expert Frank Butler Hallwood. Whether this got Preston wondering all over again, we can't know. Mr. Campbell saw the men again later, and this time he asked Butler about his rifle. Butler said he was looking for a shot, which presumably meant native game. Gazing out on Martin's Gully, Mr. Campbell commented on the wilderness, saying that if Butler shot anything in there, he'd never find it. After this innocent remark, Butler said that he and Preston were tomorrow heading by train farther up the mountains to Katoomba. The next day, on the 23rd of October, a railway carpenter named William Willis saw Butler alone. He was sitting opposite a disused railway platform at Numantia. The men made small talk about the weather, and Butler said he was hot as hell because he'd been down in the gully prospecting for gold. William Willis said, quote, You might have had better luck if you'd gone after coal. Butler asked for directions to the nearest platform where the train to Sydney was going to stop. He was back in the city that night and returned to the railway refreshment rooms. On the 25th of October, he ran into Elias Thompson, who said, Hello? Are you back again? What's the matter with you? Butler said, oh, that young fellow got knocked up, which meant out of breath. He also lamented that that young fellow had been useless in the bush, so he was back, quote, to look for another mate. Butler checked out and, under the name of Frank Butler, checked into a boarding house called the Metropolitan Hotel on Pitt Street. He ran his newspaper advertisements again and again. He had numerous applicants. Lee Weller was born in London in 1858 and he'd been a sea captain. Short, stout, with dark hair, curly whiskers and a thick beard, he certainly looked the part. Lee Weller's career had taken him all over the globe. Even so, he wasn't as worldly as he might have been. His solicitor in London would later tell the UK Sun newspaper that Lee Weller was a thorough English gentleman open-hearted and affable, yet he was also a man who would believe almost anything that was told to him. Lee Weller's maritime career had been cut short around 1890 by an eye condition. After that, he and his wife Dorothy left England for South Africa. According to the solicitor, they lived in Johannesburg where they lost a considerable sum of money. The Wellers visited England in 1893 and British Columbia the following year before returning to South Africa. Even though they'd lost money, they were still materially comfortable and in early 1896 they sailed with a friend for Australia from Cape Town aboard the bark South Esk. After arriving in Sydney, they met via their friend a man named Robert Luckham who worked on the business side of things for the Bulletin magazine. The Wellers sailed with the South Esk for Newcastle, and they were supposed to continue with the ship to Chile, where it was to deliver a load of coal, but a miners' strike saw it stuck in port for months. Mrs. Weller decided to remain living in their quarters aboard the vessel, but Lee Weller went to stay in Manly at Robert Luckham's house. On the 11th of August, Weller got word that his wife was sick aboard the South Esk, and he made a mercy dash to Newcastle. Mrs. Weller was dead by the time he got there. The news was broken to Lee by Detective James McHattie of the Newcastle Police. This officer had also taken Mrs. Weller's jewellery into safekeeping, and he now returned these valuables to the grieving widower. The inquest a few days later would conclude that Mrs. Weller had died of heart disease. Back in Sydney, Lee Weller mired himself in drink. He took lodgings in Phillips Street in Sydney and, during one misadventure, his wallet and his master's ticket were stolen. 
going to the police Weller's case was handled by veteran city detective John Roche, who successfully recovered these belongings. So, in the course of just a few weeks, Lee Weller's life had been turned upside down. A direct result of this was that he'd been put into close contact with two New South Wales detectives who knew not only his name, face and manner, but who'd also seen his documents and his valuables. By October 1896, Lee Weller was looking to make a change. The newspaper advertisement he saw promised an adventure out in the fresh air of Australia's wild landscape. On the 25th of October, he went to the Metropolitan Hotel and spent two hours there talking with Butler. It was decided Lee Weller would accompany him to the Blue Mountains. On the 27th of October, Robert Luckham went to lunch with Weller at the Commercial Travellers Club. He'd later tell the Australian Star newspaper, quote, I could not persuade him against the trip, nor could I induce him to let me see his mate. He was very confident. That afternoon, I met him and helped him pack his box. This box was a big sea chest, and into it went most of Lee Weller's possessions, including books, sheet music and clothes. He was going to take with him watches, some jewellery and the cash from his most recent remittance from London. Weller would also take away two going-away gifts that Robert Luckham gave him, a bulldog revolver and a pocketbook inscribed with Robert's own name. Mr. Luckham would later say his friend was acting oddly, quote, He then seemed a different man and wanted to quarrel. It appeared to me as if he had been drugged. He said he was going to catch a train and then said he had missed it. I got a cab and he had a row with the cabman. He did not go to the train, but I have heard since that he went to the hotel where Butler was. Weller's landlady, Mrs. Trennan, also thought something was off. Quote, a quieter person I have never met until the day he left, and then he appeared to be very wild. I asked him where he was going, and he said he was going with a man to Cobar. He was so out of sorts that I did not speak to him further. The next night, Lee Weller wrote to his solicitor in London, quote, I leave Sydney tomorrow and am going up country with a man prospecting for gold. I can't tell you our definite destination, but our first move will be to Glenbrook and from thence to Lithgow and Bathurst. I have nothing at stake re money. Should we do any good work, we go equal shares. Perhaps fortune will do me a turn. It is about time. It is a wild, free, open life. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Despite the strange circumstances of their farewell, Weller had promised to write to Mr. Luckham as soon as he was able. On the morning of the 29th of October, Butler and Weller had breakfast at the Metropolitan Hotel and then went to Redfern Railway Station. Here, Weller put his sea chest into storage. They then took the 10.15am mountains train, riding in a carriage with a railway worker named John McMiles. Butler and Weller got out at Glenbrook at 11.50 that morning, their tickets collected by station master Lewis Beatty. A man named James Coxon, who was repairing a railway fence, also saw them arrive. Carrying their swags, picks and shovel, with Butler shouldering a rifle, they headed half a mile to Glenbrook Lagoon, where they set up their tent and made camp. Later that day, in the little mountain village, Lee Weller bought bacon for their dinner. There was a thunderstorm the next afternoon. Around five or six in the evening, near his camp, railway worker James Coxon saw Butler again. Butler told him that he'd left his mate back at the lagoon camp because his friend was sick from alcohol. At around four the following morning, James Bunyan, a butcher down the mountain at Emu Plains, heard two gunshots a few seconds apart, though on reflection he thought it might have been one, followed by an echo. Later that morning, an old Glenbrook resident named J.J. Wood saw Butler come up out of the gully behind his house. Asking another local who the man was, Mr. Wood was told he was one of those prospectors. 
Mr. Wood thought the man must be a bit daft, but he didn't think any more of it because he was about to head out west himself with a mate to go prospecting in real gold country. In the early afternoon, Frank Butler was back at Emu Plains alone. Here, he gave a swagman named Peter Farrell a bag containing bacon, tinned meat and candles. Butler told this man there were more things he might find useful, including a tent at the camp he'd just broken in Glenbrook, and he even handed him a rough map where X marked the spot that he'd find these goods. At Emu Plains Railway Station, Butler, who was soaked from the waist down and carrying a carpet bag and a rifle, spoke to a porter named Anderson. He told this man that he and his mate had sold a mine out west and pocketed £2,000 each. He said that this friend had gotten sick and that he'd also gone to Burke. Explaining why his pants were wet, Butler said he'd been shooting in Glenbrook in the rain. When the Sydney train arrived, Butler got into a second-class carriage. Here, he must have wondered why he was being plagued by coincidence. That was because he was sharing this carriage with Joseph McMiles, the railway carpenter who travelled with him and Lee Weller on the way out from Sydney. And also in the carriage was railway worker James Coxon, who he'd encountered the previous evening. Both of these men noticed Butler, clocked that he was alone, but neither of them spoke to him. Back in Sydney, on this last night of October 1896, Frank Butler Horwood, a.k.a. Richard Ash, a.k.a. John Newman, was in the clear. No one knew anyone was missing. No one knew he'd had anything to do with anything. Yet, on the other side of the world in Norway, family and friends of the man who'd called himself Charles Burgess might have been wondering how their loved one was getting on in the Australian goldfields. Certainly in Brisbane, Arthur Preston's family was increasingly anxious because the boy's letters home had suddenly ceased and none of his Sydney friends had heard from him either. In Manly, Robert Luckham wasn't worried yet, beyond his reservations about Lee Weller's mysterious mate. But as days became weeks without a letter arriving, Robert Luckham became more and more concerned. While he was fretting at his home in Manly, 100 miles north, on the 17th of November, a man went into the office of the Newcastle Herald and Miners Advocate and wrote out a three-line classified advertisement. Quote, Metallurgist wants agreeable mate. Prospecting, mining experience unnecessary. Equal shares. Butler, this office. Three days later, on the 20th of November, Robert Luckham set pen to paper himself writing to Sydney's Inspector General of Police to say that he feared for the safety of a missing friend, Lee Weller, who'd responded to a newspaper ad and gone west looking for gold with a man who called himself Frank Butler Horwood. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's First Serial Killer Manhunt. The next instalment will be out soon, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcast because it really helps other people find the show. Forgotten Australia was written, produced and presented by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>